Mike. Glad you could join me for some great seafood. Me too. Wait, why are you dressed in fishing gear? You said we were going out to catch great seafood, right? Yes, to Popeye's. Do you even know how to fish? No, I thought you did. Oh, yeah, I could catch pretty good seafood at Popeye's. Let's go. Let Popeye's do the fishing while you enjoy our delicious signature seafood. Get Popeye's flounder fish sandwich or shrimp tackle box before they're gone. Limited time at participating U.S. restaurants. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey, welcome to Dose of Leadership. So happy you're tuning in. Love this conversation today with Dennis Brower, or D.L. Brower. He's a former naval aviator, and so anytime I have a former pilot on the show, it's always a great conversation, particularly a fellow gold winger like uh, Dennis. He is the author of a great book called The Return on Leadership. It's a book that defines and quantifies the impact of the leader, and I think that's the important thing, is that it uh, quantifies or it puts uh, – it's, it's a book about growth and innovation – and it combines case studies from his experience in working in that in the enterprise cloud services with the current research on culture, leadership, and innovation. And it's unique, again, because it defines and quantifies the role, really for the first time, the role of the leader in achieving growth, whether it's people, it's teams, or markets, or all three of them. It's different and unique, and it's important because this research shows that while growth and innovation are sometimes labor-intensive, sometimes capital-intensive, it is always, as we know here in Dose of Leadership, leader-intensive. And the bottom line is that good leadership can now be defined and it can be quantified and cultivated. And that makes for great business. And it was a really fun conversation. And I highly recommend the book, The Return on Leadership. You're really going to enjoy this conversation with D.L. Brower. Hey, this show is brought to you by my online leadership course, Legacy Leader Blueprint. It is an online video course that includes 20 high-impact high videos and over six hours of live group coaching and facilitation by me, and it will allow you and your team to become true leaders of influence. The course teaches you how to defeat mediocrity, how to defeat stagnation, how to create high-impact cultures of initiative, how to build empowered teams with high degrees of implicit trust. You can check out all the testimonials, and you can also see a video that I created that show you, shows you the inside of the course. It shows you the dashboard, if you will, and you can see what uh, each of the videos contain. And again, it's a great resource for those organizations that find it difficult to find the time or the resources to get quality leadership education. And I created this course so that you, it doesn't disrupt your busy schedules and it doesn't break the budget either. Right now, the seats are starting at $349 a seat. Those prices will go up in 2018. I have a slot available for this January of 2018. If you want to sign up now in December, sign up your team anywhere between five and 10 of your high performers and start planting those seeds of leadership culture in your business. Check out more at doseofleadership.com and go click on the Legacy Leader Blueprint menu item and you can learn all about this fascinating course. All right, here's the conversation with Dennis Brower here on Dose of Leadership. Well, Dennis, so excited to have you on the show. Welcome to Dose of Leadership, my friend. Thanks, Rich. It's great to be here. Always good to talk to a fellow gold winger, someone that's experienced the 
the trials and tribulations of naval aviation. So I'm excited to talk with you. So how did uh, I guess I I always ask former military members, and particularly naval, naval aviators, how did you transition from naval aviation to the corporate arena? Well, that's a, an interesting question, and I think. In some ways, everybody has a unique story, but I think there's some common threads to it. Uh, for me, I was really fortunate um, on my my shore duty, which was the last three years that I was in the Navy. I was very uh, lucky to get stationed at Texas A&M, so I was able to earn my MBA, uh, my master's in business while I was there, which I think eased my transition a bit. I was very fortunate to be um, accepted into a, an entry position at IBM. They, have, they call them marketing reps. They're sales reps. You get through the put through the entire, the entire, 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 at least at that point you did, which was renowned as the best sales education you could get anywhere in corporate America. Um, so from a, from a vocational perspective, that really helped make the transition. I will tell you that perhaps the most difficult part was transitioning from something I talk about in my book, which is the crew concept, yeah. um, you know, that just total trust that you have uh, in, in your in your crewmates, that it took a while to adapt that approach and become accustomed to really the corporate approach, where you're you're a part of many crews, a part of many teams, um, with varied backgrounds and varied education. So that that diversity, I guess, of background and focus and professionalism, did take some getting used to. I think we all know that anybody who served in naval aviation or military aviation in perspective is very fortunate to have have uh, served in an organization with very high standards for training and professionalism and, and uh, you know, backing up your, your fellow aviators. Well, I'm curious to find out at what point did you start to realize how much the Navy taught you about uh, leadership and did it help you in your, in your corporate profession? Yeah, I think I started to realize how much I had learned, honestly, probably seven or eight years into my post-military experience. I spent the first four or five years really as what we would call an individual contributor as an you know, right. a, an independent salesperson carrying a bag. Um, and I found that my military experience, not so much my leadership experience was relevant there just because of the attention to detail, the follow-up that you did on, on every loose end. And that, that did serve me well in a sales role. The leadership experience didn't really kick in until I had moved into a management role for a year or two and things started to get kind of tough, right? Decision, decisions needed to be made that were not easy for anybody. And that's when I really started to dig back into that, um, into the decision making and the leadership qualities that the Navy really hammers into people from day one. Did you kind of assume that if you were a large organization like IBM, like the basics, the tenets of leadership were, were well understood? I went into the corporate arena thinking that. Did you have that same experience? Yeah, I did. I did. But it wasn't. I mean, but then I, it, as I started diving into it, I realized there was a, a big gap. And did, did you have the same experience? I did. And, you know, in retrospect, it all makes sense because if, if you just look at the level of preparation that we take, that we really took for granted in uh, military aviation, you assume that everybody has that level of preparation for the roles that they're in. Exactly. You know, you extend that logic. It's just like you're in a leadership role. I assume that you're prepared for that, not just assessed for the capabilities and not just, you know, somebody who would probably succeed, but that you've actually been prepared for that. And as, as we look across the leadership uh, development and training that goes on across, across corporate America, we certainly find that that's not the case. I mean, yeah. people are put into leadership, put into management roles, pronounced as leaders. And then it's just like, okay, you've been kicked into the deep end of the pool. Um, 
go get them, tiger. And in many cases, <laughs> right. in a majority of cases, people really aren't up to the up to the challenge. Well, and I think that you know you hit it on the head. We get put in these roles, and I've talked about this many times in the show that we get put in these roles because we were successful in some technical or tactical aspect of the job. You saw that in the military too. I mean, you know, this guy can fly the plane like Chuck Yeager and, and, yep. and, and well, of course he's going to make a great leader. Well, that's not necessarily the case, right? I mean, because the skill sets yeah. are different. And I, I think that if you're the best salesperson and you're knocking it out of the park and the best salesperson, well, yeah, yeah, let's make him or her the leader because then everybody else will be the same. And you typically find that the best salesperson is like, well, I just want to sell. I don't want to deal with all these people problems, you know? So yeah, everything, very true. everything falls apart. Yeah. So t- tell me a little bit about the kind of the genesis of the book then, because, um, I, the thing that drew me to wanting to have this conversation, because you're talking about how, Hey, we can start measuring the intangible here for 16 years in a corporate arena. I would butt heads with senior leadership and I talk about the importance of leadership and they're like, well, you can't measure it. You know, I got to have this red, red, green, yellow KPI on this board. And how are you going to quantify leadership? And I always struggled with it. And so now it looks like return to leadership is kind of answering that question. Am I hitting on the head there? Yeah, oh, you really are. I mean, that, that's been my exact experience. You know, there were a certain set of leadership behaviors uh, that were reinforced, certainly in the, in the, in the leadership training that we received in the military, but also you know, I was very fortunate to go through about six days of leadership training at the Center for Creative Leadership and a couple of other seminars that reinforced uh, some of the things I needed to be doing and honestly called out some of my bad habits. And I always took that leadership training to heart and then tried to apply it in roles that I was in. So trying to take that, that crew concept approach, that real um, collaborative approach based on mutual trust, a, a belief that we're all you know, pull in the same direction. We all share that common vision. I tried to apply that in the roles that I was in. And three times I took that approach and got promoted. Three times I took that approach and ended up getting fired. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> right. okay, um, you know, I'm not much of a social scientist, but I find that pretty, pretty interesting. So in 2013, um, I found myself at the tail end of one of those engagements. And I decided, you know what, I've been fascinated by not just being a leader, but by the practice of leadership, what is leadership and why, you know, why is it like the weather, you know, where we all talk about it all the time, but nobody does anything about it. There's, there's gotta be more to it than that. Right. And, uh, I was very privileged that in, um, May of 2003, actually September of 2013, uh, to be accepted into the Georgetown, uh, university leadership coaching certification program. And that really kicked off a new phase for me. So since 2013, I've been completely immersed in the science of leadership, trying to answer that question of, you know, is, is, there, is there something scientific about this? Is it measurable? Um, is there a response to this kind of mouthwash stuff that you hear all the time about, you know, leadership, it's great if you've got it. If you don't, you can just bully your way through. It's an optionable, it's an optional, non-quantifiable, undefinable soft skill that we're willing to do without because it really doesn't affect the business. Mm-hmm. I just thought that's got to be wrong and uh, I'm going to learn everything I can about it. So um, I really immersed myself in the, in the study of the science of leadership starting in, in 2013 and for me, it really all came together um, around a couple of things. First of all, the, the research that I was exposed to um, 
in the Georgetown University Leadership Coaching Program. But then secondly, as part of that, as an offshoot from it, I discovered a company called The Leadership Circle became and became certified in uh, administering and coaching around an assessment tool called the Leadership Circle Profile. It's a questionnaire. It's built around a questionnaire that's been systematically designed over the last 20 years to assess leaders, break out their skills um, into 29 different dimensions, subdimensions categorized across eight dimensions. And then everything is statistically correlated, right? So it's not just like, well, it'd be nice if you did this, it'd be nice if you did that. It's just like, if you did this, there's a 0.66 probability that will have an impact on your assessment um, as an authentic leader. Um, so I dove into that. The more I learned about it, it's just like that all just clicked with me, that research. So I really took that, that research and what I'd learned and went back, first of all, and looked at my own experiences as a leader and used the, and saw it all through this new lens. And suddenly things really began uh, to make sense. Um, for me, it became clear enough that I thought I really need to capture this because what I'm learning here isn't just unique to my experience. It's, it's a universal condition. I mean, people complain about the weather. People complain about their bosses. They complain about their jobs. And the most poignant way I've heard it put is I've been told far too many times, my job is easy, but working here is hard. Right. Um, and, and the reason for that inevitably came down to leadership, making things harder than it needed to be. So all of that coalesced and really, um, you know, I'd had a lifelong dream of becoming an author, writing a book, and I thought this is it. It's something I really care about, and I'm I'm really going to do the do the research and do the do the work to pull this together into something that's coherent and hopefully helps people you know live better lives. That sounds fascinating. I, my first question that I'm I'm concerned about because I've I've run across those data-driven CEOs that need to see the empir- empirical evidence, and this is exciting that. Y- you're saying that we now have it and can give me an action plan towards implementing leadership uh, throughout the organization. My question is, is, is there the um, probability or the fear of relying on this data so we don't get into the intangible cultural piece of leadership? Or um, is it so integrated that it's a distinction without a difference? Does that make sense? Uh, it does because people say, well, those things are intangible. You can't teach those. You're born with it. You just have to learn it. And there's some truth in all of those statements. Um, but you know, there are so many things that we've taken for granted for the last hundred or hundreds of years that we've thought, you know, if you really solve, if you really figure out all of the science behind a phenomenon, what makes a sunset beautiful? If you know what makes a sunset beautiful, does it ruin the sunset? No. I mean, you understand the science behind it and you can still sit you know, it's seven o'clock in the evening with a glass of wine and, and your significant other and enjoy that sunset just as much, analogy. even if you have the knowledge. Yeah. That's a great um, analogy. What, yeah. yeah. I mean, when it comes to leadership, it's the same way. It's not a mystery. It's just something you don't understand. It's mysterious to the leader because they've never been trained on it and they've never seen the, the actual statistical correlations. Now, if it came in, if, if it turned into a situation where it's just like, for me, learning how to swing a golf club, right? There's so many details I have to keep in mind to try to hit that darn ball straight that I can't possibly think about my, where my thumbs are, where my wrists are, what my grip is like, you know, what I'm doing with my shoulder my back, my right hand, et cetera. But if I just, if I can just focus on one thing, my follow through and, and that's, what's going to drive it. That's, 
that makes it possible for me to go hit a golf ball. Leadership is the same way. Yeah. If I've got to try to think about those 29 dimensions, yeah, that's, that's not going to work. On the other hand, if I know the top two or three that are correlated to you coming across as an authentic leader, to me coming across as an authentic leader, I can start with one of those, right? And all the math and all the experience says that if I can simply start with one of those, the highest, the most highly correlated is vision, that ability to define and communicate a future worth caring about. If I just start with that, um, my effectiveness as a leader will improve noticeably. Now, if I then try to draw people into that vision, it improves again. If I can lay out a co coherent plan to make that future real, and there are roles for others to play in that, it improves dramatically. So it's really a, a way to, to kind of get the whole thing started. Um, so, you know, my experience is talking with people about it improves it. Learning the impact that your behaviors have is really, really critical. Because most leaders have a terrible feedback loop on it, right? right? If you're going in and doing a miserable job at work as a leader, the last people who are going to tell you that are the people whose lives you're making miserable, right? So you get to cruise along on top of all this misery that you're you're aiding and abetting. Um, and this feedback mechanism, it sometimes can be, you know, a pretty brutal um, encounter for the leader who hasn't encountered true objective feedback on their impact for a long, long time. You said that was a really great explanation. I, I mean, that resonated with me deeply, particularly when you talked about how, well, the analogy of the sunset was, was spot on. The analogy with the... Um, golf swing, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's so many things to uh, a golf swing that makes it perfect, mm -hmm. but you can only focus on a couple of things. Let's just follow, focus on the follow through or whatever. At least it yeah. gets it started going in the right direction. And, you, and you're seeing some improvement just by focusing on the follow through. Wow, the ball did go straighter or whatever, farther. It's a perfect example of getting started with leadership. And I love what you said about, you know, starting with communicating what we're all about, where we're going and why. Um, man, that is such a huge, that's a, that's, um, I don't know if low hanging fruit is right because there's, there's sometimes <laughs> a lot, there's a lot of work involved in getting that out. It sounds easy to get the, what you stand for and why it can, it can be a pretty painful yeah. process. I agreed, but it is a huge bang for your buck, I guess is a better way to, to look at it. I mean, because man, if you start focusing on that, yeah, you'll start to see the ball go straighter at least, you know, or at least go farther yeah. by focusing on that. And yeah, now ease everybody into, you know, let's find those high performers or those ambassadors who are going to champion this, this mission and vision and values. Yeah. I, I just love what you said there. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, the experience with that is it's, there are several categories of things here that are simple, but not easy. Right. 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 So it's one thing you need to take ownership of vision, engagement, execution. That's simple, but that's not easy or everybody would be doing it. <laughs> exactly. And you know, when it comes down to, to defining that vision, again, it's like, okay, well, how do you do that? And that's why I've got a couple of exercises that are spelled out in the book. One is specifically to get your, your key people together. And I've done this as a leader and I've done it as a coach. Get your key people in a room and say, okay, let's roll a clock ahead. Let's say three years because – one year isn't really enough to detach from today. Two years might work. Three years, you know, my experience is that almost any management team thinks they can accomplish almost anything in three years, which is a way of saying you're freed of today's limitations. And once you imagine yourself in 2020, which is a great year for a vision, right? 2020. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, ask yourself, ask, ask your team. So in 2020, what do we want this place to be? Um, 
Who do you think our customers will be? How will we serve them? What will they expect from us? What new competitors will show up? And how are we going to respond to that? What's it going to be? Um, and that there's a neurological basis to imagining that future. It engages a different part of your brain as opposed to the day-to-day firefighter. It gets you thinking longer term and that allows more creativity. Um, and I, I find that those conversations are very gratifying and uh, very energizing and lead to a lot of creativity. Once you get that future vision laid out, what do we want this place to be in three years? You're not really thinking about vision. It's just like, practically speaking, what's this place going to be like in three years? Once you get agreement on that, then you can say, well, if it's that in three years, where do we need to be in two years? Where do we need to be in a year? Six months, next month? Well, okay, then what do we need to be working on tomorrow? So at that point, you've arrived at a set of short-term goals, but this time with a difference because they'll be in the context of that long-term plan. Now, I will tell you that there if you go through the book, there's the categorization between creative and reactive leaders and creative produce better business results. They just do. And the the research shows that. Unfortunately, most leaders are not creative. They're reactive. Um, They tend to be shorter term focused, more detail focused. They tend to draw people down into that detail and lose sight of the horizon. They then begin to question the value of knowing where the horizon is. So what I'll the feedback I often get from reactive leaders around this exercise is to say, well, the future is going to be just like the past. It's like, um, look around. I think there's a lot of arguments that that's not the case. Um, and they'll say, that sounds too simple. I don't see how it can have an impact. It's just like, okay, um, if it sounds simple, you've probably already done it. So tell me about your three-year plan. <laughs> yeah, right. And, right. They vapor lock. You get exactly. dead air. It's just like, well, yeah, you know, I, I'm sure it's easy. I just haven't done it. It's just like, okay, well, let's just start by trying it then. And we'll see if it's easy and we'll see if there's any value in it. If, if there's not, you can tear that page out of your legal pad and throw it away and forget I exist. Um, so it's simple, but it's not easy. It is, however, worth doing. Yeah. It's, 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 it's so much of everything um, is wrapped up in that kind of again, where the ship is going and why it's heading that way. And it does take a lot of painful reflection. It's not easy, but man, the the payoff is huge. And I think it gives you a litmus test, particularly for the senior leadership to start the conversation, to to effectively start communicating it. And I don't think you can communicate it enough. I think there's no risk of over communicating where you're going and why, and it can change, you know, in three years, but at least you're, at least you're putting some context behind why you exist. And, um, mm-hmm. and I think to your point, when we're reactive in our leadership and we, in particular, if we, if we are detail oriented, we start inserting ourselves lower and lower and, and people just can't see, we're just existing day to day, reacting to the next hot, hot potato that's coming down the, the lane, you know? Um, oh yeah. And people are, people are smart. They're trainable. Um, yeah. so if they see you doing their jobs for them and then, uh, you know, stepping on their toes, Pretty soon they learn to lean out and just go, I'm not putting myself out there because the boss is just going to come in and act like the boss and do my job for me and boss me around. Um, So I'll just sit here and wait for for the boss to show up and tell me what to do. You you have that begin to spread. It's a cancer in the organization because suddenly people leaning in and looking to the future, they're leaning out and waiting for you. And in organizations like that, I found 100% of the time aren't growing. They're they're flat. They're declining. The revenue's down. Customers are leaving. People are leaving. And they're going. I don't know what I don't know what it is. We just can't seem to get out of our own way. And a lot of times it's because people who should have their eyes on the horizon have people have their eyes on you know the inbox of people two three layers down in the organization. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's been I've, there's an 
and I've seen this in the real world in two places that I've worked where um, it started becoming that way over time. It was reactive and you couldn't get, you couldn't just, you couldn't get the, the vision of where we're going and why we're just reacting to the next hot moment. And the cash flow yep. starts to become an issue. And I, and I call it the point where they start putting the locks on the office supply cabinet, you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when they're making me count, account for the pencils that I need to get out of the, the, the supply cabinet, I know things are pretty bad. And yeah. it just is the epitome of trying to control, you know, but in the meantime, we'll, we'll spend a, a you know, a hundred million dollars on something, waste it on some bad decision, but then we're putting the locks on the, on the pencil cabinet. Oh, Rich, the best, I, I have to share this one. The best one I had like that was I was a, I was a VP of product management at CompuServe Network Services and we were acquired by WorldCom. Uh, remember those guys. Right. You know, it, we look back on them now and we see this failed enterprise with a couple of soon to be felons running the place. But at the time, they walked on water. Right. Wall Street hung on their every word. And we were inside the company looking around going, this place is a, feels like a house of cards. I don't right. get why you know, the stock is headed to $100. It can't last. And we, so there was this, this incongruity between the outside uh, perception of the company and what it was like inside the company. Mm-hmm. And then they stopped providing free coffee. It's just like, okay, boom, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody just right. picked out the bottom of cards. This thing is coming down. And it wasn't long after that, that the whole thing collapsed. Yeah. Yeah. That's in fact, when it's so true, it's because everybody feels it. Cause I remember the same thing and we'd see like the kind of uh, annual report and, you know, the present CEO yeah. come up and doing the big, you know, global conference of state of the business and saying things like, well, how did he get that? Either he doesn't know or he's yeah. lying. And we're like, this is a house of cards. And then you just, then you start getting phone calls, you know, from corporate of like, hey, let me see your numbers on your department. And what's your, you know, I'm like, okay, so, you know, cash flow is an issue. And yeah, <laughs> when the lock, it was when the lock happened on the the pencil cabinet um a week later my department yeah. evaporated and i was out of a job yeah well you made a com- you you'd made a comment earlier that you can't over communicate vision well actually you can if it's if it's cynical or it's right. uh, it feels it, it's, if not it, authentic. If it's not authentic yeah. people in the trenches go come on that's not what it really is the more you communicate it the the digger or the deeper the hole you're digging gets right. If it's something that you've done the work to build up to really involve people in defining that vision, they understand their role in achieving it, and you're you're executing credibly. Like the example of uh, Alan Mulally at Ford that I use in my book. Yeah. Then then you can spend all day every day communicating it, and you're putting more energy into something that people are aligned with and people agree with, and and that's where that's where growth ultimately comes from. Right. The other benefit that comes from that is that when people know where you as a leader are going. They can align with it. You don't have to go, you know, align their work with it. They're smart enough to know today, okay, I'm hearing this, hearing this, hearing this from management. I buy into that direction. Now I have to decide if I put my time into project A or project B or customer um, one or customer two. Knowing what I know now about our direction and my role in it, I can now make that decision um, about where to, what to make my priority on my desk. And that's where the impact of leadership, that return on leadership, mm-hmm. really becomes an essential thing because now you've got, you know, 10, a dozen, hundreds, thousands, maybe tens of thousands of employees who are spontaneously aligning themselves with a the vision. The impact of that is just 
huge. Yeah, and that's the, uh, that's the secret sauce, right? I mean, and I think it's it's yeah. it's that's where you create a smart organization. Where, where the other example where we were talking about inserting ourselves lower and lower, dispensing yeah. the efforts of those around us, and who should really be doing the work because we're not communicating. It's a it's a whole commander's intent thing from the military, right? I mean, when yeah. when you're firing in all cylinders in a chaotic environment and it's working, well. The senior leaders are focused on that. This is what we want to accomplish and why. And like, oh, and here, Dennis, by the way, this is this is what I need you to do. And here are the parameters. And here's the sandbox I want you to play in. But here, let me take you, let me spend a little extra time and pull you back and show you the other sandboxes and how you are interrelating with them and why this is such a big deal because we're trying to save the free world from communism or whatever. Right. And so yeah. now when I turn you loose, you're empowered and you own it. And you feel free to make decisions aligned with the overall intent of what we're trying to accomplish. And so now you mm-hmm. don't get the phone calls. Well, what do you want me to do now, boss? What do you want me to do now? You're asking for forgiveness instead of permission because you're making yep. decisions that are aligned with the intent or the mission, vision and values, whatever you want to call it. Right. Am I hitting it on yep, the other exactly. Yeah. Well, I think that's, well, go ahead. I was just going to say it shows up in some surprising ways too, right? Because this is a concept that you hear about as people talk about military experience in particular, about, you know, think like the enemy, um, train like you fight, fight like you train, think like the enemy. We certainly see it in counterinsurgency tactics, but I, it, this is another case study that's in the book. Um, I was on USS Enterprise. We were in the Indi- uh, Indian Ocean, actually in the North Arabian Sea. And we knew that there was a Soviet Victor class nuclear powered cruise missile equipped submarine out there that was really designed and built to sink American aircraft carriers, but we, no one had ever found him right when he was on patrol. Right. And, uh, we started you know, our tactics where you fly around every night, you get a, you get a patch of water, you go drop movies in it and you listen to snapping shrimp and bubbles all night long because there was, <laughs> there was no submarine in it. And uh, a friend of mine and I, Steve Winicky, call sign wink, decided to challenge those tactics. And you know, we went to the Admiral's anti-submarine warfare officer and said, why are we doing this? And he said, well, we know there's a submarine out there. We figure he's hiding. So we're going to go search a random piece of water every night. Just like, well, that's like saying we know John Bon Jovi lives in New Jersey. So we're going to go sit, you know, <laughs> we're going to go, <laughs> go pick- hop on exit 16 or whatever and wait for him to walk in. It's just like, <laughs> right. it's like, could it happen? I suppose, but that's not what you'd call a plan. Right. Uh, so what we did is we really put ourselves within the mind of that Soviet submarine commander and asked, why is he here? And the first assumption was wrong. He's not here to hide. He's here to practice killing us. And if you just take that assumption and ripple it through all your tactics, well, he's not sitting on the other side of the North Arabian Sea hiding from us. He's skulking around up there, probing our defenses, trying to figure out how to get to us. Um, and we went from in the matter of a few days of applying that mindset where you really think about where's this guy going? And if I were him, what would I be doing? We were able to go from weeks of fruitless searching to pinpointing his location uh, within 20 minutes in two miles. Turned out he was two miles off the port bow of USS Enterprise and no one knew he was there. Right. And the way we figured out he was there, we didn't stumble on him. We deduced it by knowing what that guy was there to do. And the only reason I bring that up is, first of all, it's a phenomenally cool story and people should buy the book just to, just to read that. <laughs> uh, but secondly, because it shows the power of leadership. If I, as a leader, am clear about where I'm going, why I'm going there, and what I expect from you, 
others can align with that. Yep. Others can look at well, that person seems to be very serious about it, very clear and cogent about what, what they're doing and why I can now align with that. And it'll make a difference in the work that I have on my desk. So that it, it's a really important feature of leadership, that ability to be clear um, and cogent about you know, what you want and why you want it. That's a great story. And it, hit, it really does hit home. And I, know, I think it also emphasizes the importance of the emotional quotient piece of leadership, which includes the self-awareness of yourself, but also the ability to um, put yourself, in this case, the, the enemy uh, yeah. commander of the sub, but I mean, it's, it doesn't have to be the enemy. I mean, it can be the person, your, your teammate, you know, your other coworkers, but certainly your competition, and everything else. It's that emotional quotient piece and the self-awareness piece and how you, I mean, that needs to be exercised daily, whatever you can to, to exercise that aspect of it, I think is, is the cornerstone of leadership. I really do. Because it really is. There's a lot of research, neuroscience research, that says um, there's one particular exercise that leaders need to be able to do that pays off dividends all over the place. It, your scores will skyrocket. You'll move from reactive to creative just by doing this. And that is to try out someone else's perspective. Right. And don't try it in a way of like, okay, I'm, I'm going to understand why they're wrong. Really put yourself in that other person's mm-hmm. shoes in, you know, behind their desk and with their iPhone and go, What's it like to be in that role? What's it really like to inhabit that? And, you know, we see some leaders who will go out and they'll sit on the front lines and take trouble calls, that sort of thing. That's a, that's a great example of it. To really, say, to really say, I'm imagining myself in that role right now. What's that like? Um, it really rounds out your perspective as the leader. You'll learn from it. And, that again, there's neuroscience research that says actually doing that expands your, your perspective. Well, and you hit it. The key word is perspective. I mean, I think a lot of times um, in life and all of our in everything, the, particularly when it comes down to communication and we're communicating with others, we have to understand where the other person is coming from. And it's again, it's one of those simple things to understand, not easy, so easy to do. Because a lot of times, yeah. if that communication is directed at us, or if, even if it's hurtful, but I'm telling you, if you if you've got that strong emotional quotient, if it's really firing at all cylinders, you're able to deflect or even look past the hurtful comment and look past it and go, well, okay, this is coming from a hurt place. They don't really mean it. And you know, and you just remove yourself from whatever barbs are coming your way and you get yep. into the mind of, of why they're even saying it. And then you start to realize that what they're saying actually kind of makes sense. If you see their, truly see their perspective, if that, does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. Well, it really does. And again, I'll go back to that reactive versus creative uh, stance and leaders that really comes from the research that Bob Anderson at the leadership circle has, has completed. And uh, what's really central to it is perspective. There's a whole body of research around stage of adult development. And it, it really resets this chronological view of adult development for forever. We've thought that you start out as an infant, you become a child, you're a young adult, you're an adult, you're middle-aged and, and then you know, you're the elderly. But from a leadership perspective, the age is, is really not the dominant variable. The dominant variable is your perspective. And that, that perspective comes down to whether you are um, focused on the short term, you're very detail focused, um, whether what the way in which you see your role, that, that perspective is measurable, it's quantifiable, 
and it can be communicated as a leadership quotient or an LQ. You've mentioned EQ a couple of times, and we've got our IQ, our intelligence, our EQ, how we interact with others, and our LQ is the impact that we have on other people around us when we're in a leadership role. Yeah. And that, you know, that question about the, the leader who has to quantify everything, it's no problem. You run that person through a leadership circle profile at this point, they will get an LQ. If they're at 1.0 or below, they are a strategic detriment to their organization. If they're 1.0 or above, they're, they're some kind of a positive uh, impact as a leader. If they're above a 2.0 or certainly above a 4.0, they become the secret weapon for that organization because they can get people to do things, not through, uh, not through uh, some kind of Machiavellian approach, but they can get people to do things because they've defined a future worth caring about. People understand how they can make it real and they're willing to throw their heart and soul and, and mind into executing on that plan. I love it. And I think that, you know, people have said, well, these intangibles aren't measurable. And they're not that important. I'm telling you, the intangibles are the most important metrics. If I can say that, I think they're the most powerful metrics for revenue, for profits, for innovation, for growth. And if you can somehow quantify it, I, I think it's a game changer because <clears throat> I think instinctively we know that they're important. I mean, if, if maybe some of those data-driven guys, as you said, is like well, they don't see the importance of it. But I think if we really question ourselves, we know that those intangibles are the most powerful drivers of the business. We just can't get our arms wrapped around them. Does that make sense? Oh, it does. And, you know, the, the cool thing about it is just, you know, we all took the SAT when we were in high school. and We all took that seriously. The quantification that came out of that uh, measures our skills and ability to, you know, for the verbal and, and math challenges that we face. And we got a percentile ranking against everybody else. So if you go look at the leadership circle profile, the things that are measured in the same way where you get a percentile ranking against tens of thousands of other leaders are things like composure balance, uh, personal learner, integrity, courageous authenticity. Uh, those, those are all positive ones. The, they, and when I say positive, they correlate in a positive way to authentic leadership, which has, which puts results on the board. However, they're the same things for, uh, those characteristics, which can be overplayed and frequently are, uh, whether you're critical, whether you come across as arrogant, um, autocratic, ambitious, driven, those are all things that in small doses may work, but they, uh, for in organizations that aren't growing as rapidly or performing as well as leaders think they should, and for leaders who are frustrating people to work for them, those things tend to be overplayed. And that can be measured um, and, and scaled on a percentile basis. So if you take this, I, I can say you're, you're in the 45th, you're, you're in the 80th percentile for arrogance, just like you know what? You got to take that seriously because that's getting in the way of your ability to to make great things happen. Um, so each one of those can be quantified. It's been done tens of thousands of times. I'm certified to do it. I've I've done that uh, those assessments of leaders, good, bad, and ugly, and I've had the assessment done of myself uh, from a turnaround that I ran, and uh, you know, and I had the same thing done for. Uh, my former Navy pilot, J.P. Kelly, for a turnaround that he ran of a Navy training squadron. So wildly diverse settings. And uh, our rankings came out. Um, my LQ was a 4.39, 6.39, and J.P.'s was a 6.4. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it, it, it's, all, it's all doable. It's all quantifiable. Um, 
I view it as kind of like a, a diagnostic. Well, it is a diagnostic tool. It's kind of like an x-ray, right? It will uh, tell you things you didn't know. It may serve as a motivation for change. Change, And the news isn't always good. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Oh, I love these analogies. Well, the book yeah. is The Return on Leadership, A Three-Step Plan to Navigate Change and Unlock Hidden Growth. I'm excited to read this, Dennis. I think uh, you're, you're speaking Great. my language, and I know a lot of my listeners are going to be anxious to get this copy and, and particularly if we can start quantifying some of these intangibles, I think it's yep. spot on. I love it. How can people get in touch with you? How can they learn more about you and uh, the book, your speaking, all that stuff? Well, I'm certainly out there on Facebook and LinkedIn, very active profile on LinkedIn is DL Brower. Uh, but probably the, the best way to, uh, to engage in this is you can go to returnonleadership.info and that will take you directly to my book, the book page on my my internet, uh, my website. Um, so there's a fair amount of information about the book there, and it will also take you to the four different retail outlets that are selling the book today. Um, the website homepage is just dlbrower.com. That's b-r-o-u-w-e-r.com. Um, and through that, you can you can connect with me. I'm at dennis at dlbrower.com, and be happy to engage with people. I mean, I really did this to. I really did this because I think that the secret to productivity in this country uh, in the broadest sense and then productivity in people's lives for people being able to live happy and productive lives is we spend more of our time at work than we do at anything else. So let's take some of the pain out of that. Let's make that what it should be, which is, you know, uh, a workplace with dignity and the ability to have an impact and for us to enjoy a shared purpose. And that's, that's really what it's all about. So if people like to talk about that, I'd be more than happy to, to interact with folks. Well, I love it. You're absolutely right. We, we live lives. We don't live separate lives. And unfortunately yeah. we're wrapped in separate lives. And if we can get to the point where we're living a life and it's fun, it's enjoyable, it's profitable, it's meaningful, it's significant. Uh, I'm all for it. And I, and I think you and I agree wholeheartedly that leadership is at the central of all that. It's, it's central to everything that we do, every aspect of our life, not just in business, but everything in life. And so I love what you're doing, Dennis, and um, I'm anxious to read the book. And I'm so excited that you came on the show and, and proud to call you part of a member of the, the Dose of Leadership Tribe. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure, Rich. This has been great. Thank you. Hey, thanks for tuning into the show. Go to richardryerson.com or doseofleadership.com and fill out the contact page and reach out to me. Let me know where you're at your leadership journey. Also, if you want access to my brand new online leadership course to help become a better leader, go to LegacyLeaderBlueprint.com. Fill out your email and you gain access to a free 12-minute video that will reveal the top secrets of leadership and also show you how you can gain access, exclusive access, to my online leadership course. That's LegacyLeaderBlueprint.com. Hope to see you on the inside. Thanks for tuning into the show. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu.